in policy circles, there had been a reluctance to close schools from scientists and from government until the last minute, but they actually ended up closing them earlier than they'd ever planned because of that atmosphere. A number of other observations. I do know that clo schools never closed. They, were were they stayed open for key workers, uh, children and for vulnerable children. And in many instances, uh, um, you know, a lot of schools, a lot of teachers, a lot of teachers will be here have gone into school and taught throughout this whole period. But there was also a growing number, uh, even despite schools being kept open for that, there was a diminishing number of young people who were going in for those lessons. And I didn't, I was surprised to hear from friends, from acquaintances and from teachers I knew that even though there was uh, less than the vulnerable children or the key uh, children of key workers, there wasn't much chase up going on in the schools. It was kind of allowed to happen. Of course, teaching continued via Teams and Zoom, but it's been mixed as to how successful that's been. And in some instances, it's been quite perfunctory. And in some instances, it's been brilliant and well executed. So it's a, a different picture. But as a consequence of that differing picture throughout the country, there's been some criticism on social media, particularly by parents saying our kids aren't getting hardly any lessons. They've just been given homework. There's not much going on. What's happening? Our teachers just kind of lazing around at home. And understandably, teachers who are working their guts out got fed up with this. But I also thought that those teachers would themselves want to get on top of it, would want to resolve the problem and to actually ensure a higher standard of education was delivered. But instead, certainly in relation to social media, which is not the world, and I do understand that, but on social media, the teachers who are most active and most vocal seem to be deeply resentful of any criticism whatsoever and complained that they weren't acknowledged as key workers and talked about NHS staff but say, well, what about teachers? We're working too. It, it, it felt like a kind of grievance that was being expressed about any criticism. And I was surprised about all of this because I had, I suppose, thought that teachers would rise to the challenge as a profession. Now, I'm a, a conscious of the fact that, that lots of individual teachers will have done different things, but I'm talking about a trend as a profession. I thought that there would be, from teachers, a real sense of leadership, of reassurance, of actually if anything, not, you know, quelling the panic and also pushing for schools to reopen properly as quickly as possible. Why did I think that? Because the whole history of teaching, particularly of state school teaching, by the way, is that teachers would move mountains to teach. You know, the whole history of education historically has been those kind of brave warriors who've gone out and set up schools in the most adverse situations and all around the world it's often teachers who are in war zones or in refugee camps almost act like missionaries they say education must carry on regardless and they set up schools without any sense of their own uh, uh, welfare or anything else and so I suppose that's my public service point to give a, a romantic quote from a, a, Ghan, a Ghanaian teacher a bit of a guru uh, 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 um, uh, Randall uh, um, uh, Bitsung he said, teaching is more than a noble profession. It is a vocation, a calling. The teacher is the most important person in any civilization. 
And although that's a rather self-regarding, self-flattering statement by a teacher, many teachers in a way aspired to that vision of themselves as being people who would do anything to teach. And yet what we have now got is a different atmosphere, a real hesitation about opening the schools, a reluctance to return. And of course, the argument is that safety is the prime reason why we wouldn't go full, why they haven't led, as it were, a return. You have to ask the question, safety for who? I had a kind of rather acrimonious exchange with Mary Boosted, uh, the leader of the NEU, on on, uh, social media, who, after one report that the teachers' union was saying that pupils should be disinfected at the door, which I thought was a rather unsavoury prospect, and and treating them as kind of disease spreaders. Um, She said she was only interested in pupil safety. And I thought, well, why are you disinfecting them then? I mean, I, who, who, whose safety were we talking about? And I'm not into union bashing, but I, you know, when I heard that the union is, this union has suddenly got hyperactive. I mean, they're not exactly renowned for defending teachers in my view, but they've appointed COVID reps. Uh, they've said that members have legal rights not to work in unsafe environments. The whole focus has actually been on teachers' uh, uh, safety. And I think that they've been unduly aggressive about putting teachers rather than pupils at the centre of this issue. And in fact, the safety of teachers, I think, is is of concern. Actually, the biggest threat to teachers is teachers passing it on to each other. Um, And you could argue that I'm just being cavalier and saying that teachers should risk their own lives. And I'm just like one of those complete lunatics who doesn't care if people die. But, you know, I I, I asked the question, did teachers campaign for PPE or protection for those who have carried on working throughout this whole lockdown in food processing factories, in supermarkets, on public transport, uh, uh, etc.? I mean, they haven't. There hasn't been the same fuss. So I wonder why there is this kind of emphasis on, on teachers rather than kind of stepping up. Rather, there's a kind of... Uh, a risk aversion. And, you know, home care staff who should have been given PPE, but they carried on. They didn't down tools when they didn't have it. And there's an argument. I'm not suggesting that they shouldn't have had more protection, but the point was they carried on and some of them were incredibly brave in relation to it. So I've just found it weird that teachers have not done the same. And I, I do understand one thing. I do understand that being asked to return to school in the particular circumstances of social distancing, when you're dealing with young people, particularly primary children, and all of the different measures that have been told you need to put in place to make a school safe, isn't hardly worth the hassle. I mean, Catherine Burble, Singh, the head teacher, uh, has made that point. Uh, Alka uh, Segal Cuthbert has written about that quite convincingly, that you you want kids to be involved in the hustle and bustle. You don't want to be keeping them apart. But, you know, and there's an excruciating, overzealous kind of set of distancing rules that I can understand a lot of teachers just won't want to go through. But that's not the basis on which they've argued. Right. That's not the basis on which they've argued against the return. That would make sense to me. In fact, it seems to me that the professional bodies and the teachers unions in particular, their emphasis on safety first 
And the, the kind of guarantee, you know, the demand that there's 100% no risk, absolute demand for total safety, is likely to make those measures even more complicated. I mean, the government are now so worried about this safety first demand that now we're going to be drowning in endless, complicated, detailed micromanaging plans. And ironically, that idea of a risk free school has long been the bane of teachers' lives. You know, over recent years, and I wrote about it in my book, that terrible onerous duty on teachers to endlessly fill in risk assessment forms for whether it's school trips or sports days or, you know, the whole way that contact sports uh, has been almost deemed as child abuse, how child protection has been used in the nth degree often to mean that there's a kind of paralysis in terms of uh, children uh, uh, interacting with other adults, teachers being treated as under suspicious if they're alone with pupils and so on. The creation of a generation of cotton wool kids always in need of care rather than teaching is something which actually teachers have resisted and rebelled against in recent years. And so my fear is that because they have now bought into the safety first culture and forgotten the public service ethos, they're actually creating a rod for their own back. That'll do to, to my initial thoughts. Cheers, Claire. Uh, thank you for that. I'm Scott. Um, I'm going to unmute Connor, but also Kevin, you're unmuted just in case you manage to get your sound back. Can you hear me, Harley? Oh, we can. Go for it. You're back. Hallelujah. Thank you, God. I'm trying to uh, un unmute Connor as well, but it's refusing. Connor, you might have to intervene. Well, we'll just go straight, uh, Harley, if it's all right with you, we'll go straight to Connor. Uh, if we can get his... Oh, can, you, can you hear me there? Yeah. Yes. Brilliant. All right. Um, I'm actually going to read what I had written. Uh, I think it does go over some of the stuff that Claire mentioned. Uh, I won't directly respond to that, but I assume that a lot of it will come out in the wash during the conversation. Thank you. Thanks, uh, Harley. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Claire. Um. Obviously, there's lots to talk about. I'm briefly going to talk about three things that have been on my mind over the course of the last eight weeks of you know, being a teacher during this current situation. And I'll, I'll try to stick to the, the remit of the blurb anyway, as best I can. Um, so myself, I mean, I've been teaching in Hackney for 11 years, mostly in the same school. And for a large part of that time, I've been a rep in the NEU and formerly the NUT. Um, the first thing that, that, that sort of popped into my head during the initial discussion of partial closure of schools, so you're talking second, third week of March, was that um, was the question of what are schools for and what do teachers do? And it's obviously recurring throughout all these conversations. And, and the reason for that was early on, there was a great deal of concern, certainly in terms of uh, the initial concerns and objections to partial closure about things like childcare. And as part of the conversation about wider opening again uh, from probably the second week of May onwards. Uh, certainly the initial rationale seemed to be a lot of stuff about getting parents back into work and and, and that's what led me to think well, what is it that schools do. Um, to me that struck me as a little bit of a diminished view of, of what schools and teachers do. I like to think that we do more than just provide a crash function so that workers can go to work um, uh, and if we do uh, fill that role for some parents maybe that possibly speaks to um, uh, the wider issue of supporting working parents, which, you know, maybe is in the mix there. Secondly, and I guess this sort of gets to the crux of some of the stuff that Claire said and, and the blurb for it, was uh, a little bit of discomfort I have with opposing public service to safety in this context, in the context of a, a pandemic. Um, so I'll, I'll sort of try and talk through my, my thoughts there. 
teachers are deeply committed to the notion of public service. Uh, you know, we, we do our jobs despite all the challenges that, that we come that we come into face face with as we as we teach. Um, the Department for Education reports, you know, teacher workload surveys that teachers work 53 hours a week on average, full-time teachers. So, you know, we're not work shy. Um, our, our pay has been lagging inflation for the entire time I've been a teacher since 2009. So we're not particularly greedy. Um, you know, we uh, have a rise in pupil-teacher ratios for the entire time that I've been teaching, according to Education Policy Institute. And so, you know, we're not afraid of a day's work. We are deeply committed to, to, to what we do, despite those challenges. You know, we have an attrition rate of around about 40% in the first five years, is statistic you usually hear. Uh, we have 100,000 people who did their QTS, did their teaching qualifications, and never set foot in a classroom because they decided, for whatever reason, it wasn't for them. So despite all those challenges and, you know, we find, you know, circumstances we find ourselves are, you know, not always of our making, we still are deeply committed to what we do, especially anybody who, who lasts a couple of years in this job. If you're still doing it, you're committed to it. You really, really care about it. Um, so, I mean, I love my subject and I love working with the kids. And I really miss the classroom. I really, I can't wait to get back into the lab and start doing my experiments again as a science teacher. I really, really miss all that. And I do want to get back to work. But in the context of a pandemic, um, I think the notion of public service and, and particular aspects and modes of the public service take on slightly different forms uh, in, in, under these circumstances. While a virus operates at the level of individuals, uh, an epidemic or pandemic operates at the, end of, at the level of social structures. And so one of the ways that you, uh, you know, minimize needless death in a pandemic is to uh, lower your movement through society and uh, this is in the absence of something like a vaccine, in the absence of adequate testing and containment and so on, which you know, apparently seem to be abandoned in the second week of March, is that you know we were called on to stop moving through society. NHS workers told people to stay at home and demanded people stay at home. The British Medical Association has urged caution about schools reopening. Um, and I think, that, I think that's relevant in this context. I mean, in terms of the role of schools in, in preventing the pandemic spread, historical data from the 1918 flu, uh, from... Uh, current COVID data from France and China, modelling from the University of East Anglia, have shown that school closures are one of the most uh, effective non-pharmaceutical interventions in terms of lowering and delaying your peak death rates. Uh, and I think that's important to bear in mind. Uh, the UK has 45,000 COVID deaths, 60,000 excess deaths in the last two and a half months. Uh, we've currently the highest per capita uh, death rate in the world on the on a rolling seven day average. The, the the borough in which I teach and work, Hackney, has the third highest COVID death rate in the country per capita. So looking at those numbers, you know, looking around at our communities, pe- people are are weighing up the risks, and they have made they have made decisions, and are capable of doing that themselves, and they simply aren't convinced about the argument of you know going back. Uh, going back, uh, you know, to increase significantly wider reopening, and that argument has not been won. With I, I would say the vast majority of people, if you believe Poland, whether it's parents, teachers, and so on. Um, and thirdly, as Claire said, and you know, we have been working throughout this. I've been working every single day that I would have been working in an ordinary year, in very different circumstances, and I'm you know still learning as I go. Um, and we acknowledge the limitations of of online learning. You know, it's incredible. Uh, a lot of variability. It is absolutely no substitute for the classroom, which is why I can't wait to get back into it whenever that is. 
Um, of course, we have remained open for vulnerable and key worker students. I have been one of those teachers and I've been in every single school week since March on a voluntary rota with the support of my union, uh, working with the, the students who, for whatever reason, can't, can't be staying at home during it. So um, there are lots of us who are prepared to take those risks during this period, and we understand those that don't. Um, but one, one thing that's kind of, I guess, popped into my mind is this period might allow us, and conversations like this might allow us to reevaluate what it is that we think is important about education. I know that in, in the time that I've been teaching, I spent a lot of time, a lot of my working time, involved in initiatives of which I think have questionable educational purpose. Um, and I sort of think, especially when, you know, from a union perspective, teachers commonly cite workload as one of the reasons that they consider leaving the profession. The 2018 union survey from, from our union really revealed about 80% 80, 80 of teachers had considered leaving and workload was the most commonly cited reason. And I think a lot of that is because we spend a lot of time doing things which, again, as I said, don't really have a particular... One minute, Connor. One minute of, left. Um, educational value. Um, I mean, I've seen so many initiatives come and go in 10 years uh, that were not argued for, never had a convincing rationale, and then were abandoned after six months. If there's time later, I can tell the parable of the blue stickers. I've told it in forums before. Um, but if we're to use our time wisely when we do go back, whatever that is, I would like to think that we'd be wise to focus on doing what it is we love and what we're good at, and that's teaching. Uh, whether that is the case when we go back uh, remains to be seen. Cheers. Thanks, Connor. Um, guys, sorry for all the little IT glitches. Hopefully it'll be all right from here on. Kevin, you've just gone again. You vanished halfway through that sentence. Okay. Joys. And, uh, okay. So um, while Kevin tries to get back in again, um, what we're going to do is start taking contributions from people. Hopefully you've all got working audio. Thanks for those who pointed out that mine was a bit quiet. Hopefully it's better now. Um, I have to switch to a different computer. Uh, so we've got the way to contribute, um, to indicate you want to contribute, is to raise your hands in uh, by clicking on the participant, participants button. You should be able to find uh, somewhere, uh, usually on the bottom of your screen, uh, and uh, under there, you have the option to raise hands. So we can see um, uh, we can see people coming up. We'll take a few people. We might start with people we uh, who are less familiar to us. See what the conversation goes. So I'm going to pick uh, Rick Moore to start. I can see Toby's got his hand raised. Most of you, I can't see everyone all at once. So raising your hands on the video won't, no, won't necessarily help. But uh, if you can do it um, by the participants button. Do that, and if last resort, put something in the the, the um, uh, chat, and we should see it. But uh, hopefully, I'm going to unmute Rick. Hi, Rick is, can you hear me? And go for it. Hi, good evening, everybody. Um, I've got. I can argue this from both sides. Um, I've got two kids, uh, year one, year six, and my wife's a teaching assistant who hasn't been working through this, um, there hasn't been enough demand, but will be going back into school soon. Um, and on the one hand, I can sort of see why throw the kids back into school as sort of one big experiment and see what that does to the numbers of cases. But on the other hand, if we don't get the economy moving, there isn't going to be any money to pay for the NHS, the furlough schemes, the schools and everything else. 
if we and and if we don't get kids back to school, we cannot get people back into the into the workplace in the majority of cases. So I really think that on balance we do need to be reopening the schools and we're not talking reopening the schools it's extending who can go and to the people that are kind of clamoring around and screaming we can't go back to school i would kind of ask them what makes them so much more special than the people that have been working through this pandemic um supermarket workers um people who work in construction engineering nhs workers you know, they've all gone and gone out to work and kept things going and put themselves at risk to do so. Um, so why are they less valuable than the people that want to stay home now that with the death rates dropping, hopefully things are getting more contained and we can start to get back to normal? Those are, those are my thoughts. Thanks, Rick. And we're going to take a few comments before we go back to uh, Claire and Connor. Uh, I'm going to pick um, is your name up on the screen is CEX Macclesfield. Hi, yeah, I'm Jane because <laughs> I hadn't signed into Zoom. I, I, I can see both sides too, but I'm kind of more where um, Claire is. I'd like to frame it a little bit differently. So we're looking at this 100% safety. We're looking at people who want kids to go back to work. I'd like to rather ask how we get them back to school because I really do understand teachers are probably more at risk than the children if you look at the stats. So I understand the safety issues and I hope that teachers get all the PPE they want. What concerns me, I'm an ex-school governor and I have a child at secondary school, is talking to the head teacher, the social distancing rules, the bubbles of less than 15 that are being recommended don't make it at all possible to deliver a reasonable curriculum so you're talking about you know a quarter of the pupils can go to school move around in groups of 15 when in secondary schools it's a massive timetable as you know people need to move around different teachers the solution they came up with is we may as well do it all from home and as the virus lowers we maybe send some small groups in what they can't do is deliver those subjects where you need a practical so if you take music you take theatre you take drama you can't do the practicals you can't do the shows so my concern is though that we're sending children back to a dystopian reality of you know 15 in a bubble or totally online how do we match the safety together with the actual overall experience education that the children that the children have when they go back to school because that really worries me going back to this for me is not the answer Thanks. And uh, it's worth, I think, noting some of the other countries that are, um, are returning uh, kids to school, some, not all of them, but have been uh, doing it without the social distancing, I believe. But uh, I uh, next up, so, um, and, and, you know, how is that working out? Uh, I'm going to go to Josephine Hussey uh, next. Just to ask you, Josephine. Hi there. Um, I just uh, wanted to say that um, I don't think um, you can... On Claire's point, I don't think you can separate teachers from society. So everyone was scared about the pandemic. So everyone was sort of thinking, you know, what do we need to do? And I think in lots of schools, particularly in London, there was a real problem. Um, personally, in my school, which is in Cambridgeshire, um, we just kept pushing and we stayed open until we were told we had to close. And I think a lot of schools reacted to that. Um, I don't think um, that. Uh, parents aren't supportive and in fact we're, we're ready to go on the uh, 2nd of June um, I'm going to be teaching year six and at the moment I've got 13 um, and the day we sent the letter out on Friday um, loads of parents phoned my head teacher and said well 
I thought it was only a survey, but I want my child to come back. So we're actually at the point where we're actually saying, no, I, we haven't got space for you, which I think is good because now the parents are going to go, we want our child to go back and then we can reduce the social distancing, which comes me on to my main point, which Connor referred to, because I think, yeah, we are a public service. I totally and utterly agree with you. And therefore, as a public service, I think we have to model open in society. And my job as a teacher, I believe, is to go in on the 1st of June, open the school and say to the children, this is fine. This is the first step to open in society. Um, at the moment, we're going to do this with our desks all separated, but this isn't going to last very long because we're doing this at the moment. And as the curve goes down, the social distancing will change. And I really think it's important to get this started now so that by September, schools are back to a situation where people can move through corridors to go to whichever class they're going to and do whichever art lessons they're doing in groups and all those other things. So I think as a public service, it's really, really important. My job is really, really important. And I think I need to be at the forefront of opening schools. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Josephine. Uh, we're going to go to John Bryan. I'm just about to unmute you and then we'll come back to Claire and Connor. There's loads of hands going up, but we'll get, I should have time for everybody. Um, so John Bryan, you should have the mic. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, I just want to, uh, uh, I mean, I, I agree with, with what some people have said. Uh, I disagree with, um, with, with some other things. I think one of the real problems that we've got is we do have a real fragmentation happening in society. You can see that in the way that different schools are talking about different days. You know, the fact is, is that when, the, I mean, I'll, I agree to a certain extent with what Claire said about the closure of, of schools, that it was under pressure from a number of number of individuals. I think some schools were, were in the position where teachers were, uh, were going down with, with sickness or, or being told to self-isolate and therefore schools did have to close down because they could no longer kind of cope with with what they needed to do um you know my one of the schools where my own daughter goes you know there, there was that kind of the, the week in the kind of run-up to it you know different year groups you know were suffering from low staff uh, from staff shortages and therefore you know closed down you know like a bit by bit the problem that we've got is is that the government doesn't really kind of give any clear direction at all it doesn't offer any leadership what it says is it, it said a couple of weeks ago from the 1st of june we want students we want schools to start to go back for this year or this year or whatever and then a whole kind of series of guidance you know which understandably trade unions started going well actually we don't agree with that and let's look at ways to scupper it and let's look at ways where we can stand up for our members we can recruit a whole load of members and i agree with one of the comments on in the chat at the side that there was a division in terms of you know different groups so liverpool took a particular you know point of view i live up in newcastle you know and you understandably round here which is largely kind of uh, left labor leaning um councils and teachers and every, everything else you know there was an opportunity to say well actually with this kind of like real kind of uh, naff kind of half announcement let's kind of you know make a particular political stand so that kind of fragmentation you know that exists um in society does allow you know people to kind of struggle for for control 
I mean, I know people have said a number of different things. So I have read people people say, well, let's use university campuses. I think that's a quite a good idea, actually. Uh, the problem is, is that there's no kind of joined up, you know, between universities and schools, you know, um, to start with to allow that sort of thing to happen. Someone said cancel the six-week holiday. Well, actually, that kind of neglects the idea that um, – or it forgets the idea that actually teachers have been working all the time. Someone suddenly said to you, you've got to start carry on working when you're expecting to have a break. You know, I'll tell people where to go as well. So I think there is, you know, understandably, there's no kind of direction from government. So power is up for grabs. And, you know, you can't blame teachers, you know, for some teachers anyway, for the way in which they're reacting. Um, you know, we've all been told, you know, like, you know, it's frightening to go outside your door. Um, so, you know, that there is that kind of grappling for control and grappling for power, you know, and while I might oppose the way that some people have, uh, some people in the NEU have kind of um, posited things, I kind of can't blame them for trying to do that. You know, if power's up for grabs, you know, why not kind of have a go at taking it? So, thanks. Thanks, John. Um, so, we're going to go back um, to Claire. Um, Claire, also, I just wanted to throw in, as you were mentioning about the, um, the uh, you know, the teachers, you were saying the teachers were, were seem to have been more risk-averse for some reason than, than um, some of the other groups in society. Why, why do you think that is? I don't know if you can answer that or pick up on anything else that's been said already. Uh, you have the mic. Um, thanks. I, 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 just following on from um, what John's just argued, I can actually see exactly what's happened, but it doesn't mean I think it's right. I mean, it's true that um, the government, I don't, I'm not a fan of the way the government have handled this pandemic. And if you want, what I think has been surprising is the, you know, on the one hand, there's the kind of the government have set out guidance, but haven't set out rules. But, you know, it's not usually the case that teachers unions demand that you have rules, if you know what I mean, from the government. But it's become an unhelpful standoff between the unions and the government in a, in a who should decide what. It's become a political battle in a narrow way. And I was trying to do a kind of broader reflection on what, what I think might have gone wrong, because I actually don't think that the teachers unions have been particularly an effective force at representing the best interests of education over recent years. So I do think they see it as a good way of getting members. Everyone likes them now. But, you know, that's cynical and opportunist and not particularly helpful in, in my view. Um, and I think that even, you know, that's one of the things that drives me mad. You know, even Connor was saying that, you know, the BMA said stay at home and the NHS staff said that teachers, the school shouldn't open. Well, you know, why, why is that right then? I mean, it, it, in some ways, the sacralisation of the NHS and save the NHS has proved problematic if you consider that in order to save the NHS, many elderly people were sent back to care homes, dumped back to care homes in order to stop the NHS suffering. And they were, you know, sent home to die in, in many instances. And also, the, the the NHS, you know, it's not, you know, in that sense, this idea that kind of we're the we're the, the holier than thou ones, then everyone else is wrong. The bit, so I so I just think it's it's more complicated than that. And I what I was trying to indicate was just that I was surprised that there wasn't more kickback or pushback in the public sphere from different sectors of of the education uh, community, as it were, amongst uh, teachers. I don't want teachers to be coerced to go back. I had a lot of sympathy with the, the lady who spoke and said, um, 
that you know this dystopian vision of sending them back to this kind of mad health and safety regime where they're all kind of everyone's washing and cleaning and separated and all the rest of it isn't an appealing uh, aspect at all but what i suppose i would have wanted in an ideal sense what i'm arguing is a point that i think rick made which is you know we do have to get back to normal and what i'm saying is i would have expected more of a leadership from schools at leading the charge on that it's not that i think they should be braver or that they're more i wasn't trying to suggest that they were more risk averse what i'm saying is i just thought that risk aversion wouldn't be the predominant sentiment of teachers it's not that i'm suggesting that they should be extraordinary but that they would be see their role as trying to be leaders in the community to make things go back to normal and the one group of people that you would want things to establish some kind of normality was for children and if you at least started off with the aim of saying let's get our schools back as quickly as possible and then to come up with a plan about how to do so all right you can then bear in mind some safety things you yourself can come up with things whereas what they're doing is saying to the government we're not going back unless this happens unless this happens and instead of saying let's work out what it is we need to do to get schools reopened so that children can be re-educated all of them together and then come up with a plan and they might have come up with a plan that said we're not going to go back till september here's our plan but instead they've almost passively demanded that they are looked after which in a way is part of the whole safety first culture you know we demand you look after us government needs to set down the rules well i don't want the government setting down the rules actually i want us to use our judgment and i've just been surprised there hasn't been more effective use of that judgment josephine's absolutely right it's much more complicated than i'm saying i know that but i'm just trying to do some broad brush strokes thanks claire um so connor um you're up you should be you hear me now yeah Brilliant. Um, I, I, I can't respond to everything. Um, some you know interesting points made there. Um, just on Rick's point, I, I mean, it's a fair question to ask. Uh, what is special about teachers over you know the other people who have been working through it this time? It's a fair question to ask. I think what it isn't that teachers are special. I mean, that would be a daft thing to, to argue. It's that the nature of a pandemic, an infectious disease, a virus that operates at uh, uh, at the level of individuals and an epidemic that works at the level of social structures is that schools are nodes on contagion networks. Um, there's quite an interesting um, quote from a, a, he's a doctor and medical sociologist, a guy called Nicholas Christakis, and he was saying that it isn't about the risk to yourself. You know, what he was saying is that every time we, you know, avoid a meeting or don't shake hands during a pandemic or take your kids out of school, you're showing compassion to innumerable faceless other people because we're interrupting possible contagion cha contagion chains, and this is and this is whether or not we get sick. So it's about communities. And speaking from my own experience in Hackney, parents were way ahead of of, of teachers in pulling their kids out of school. They were pulling out their kids out of school from the twelfth of March, when Boris stood at a briefing and said, "Many more of your family members will die." The next day, we must have lost about 10 to 15 percent of students, and we lost those students every single day until we closed as per government recommendations. So we were down, I think, on the last day, and I was in every day. I've been in every week on the voluntary road since this, so I find it a little bit difficult um, 
you know, I'm not saying anyone specific here. I'm talking about whether you're talking about edu Twitter or some of the press being lectured to or moral haranguing about about risk. I've been in every single week on the voluntary road and I was in up until the last day. So to hear that is very, very, I mean, it's quite irritating, I've got to be honest. Also, speaking to the unique context, I don't know a single person um, in my school community who doesn't know someone who's died of COVID or been intubated. Again, I'm in Hackney, so we've got a particularly high uh, per capita death rate in terms of the rest of the country. So my experience may not be universalized to the whole country. But I really understood that. I understood why parents were taking their kids out. We're, you know, inner London, a lot of multi-generational households. We have teachers, we have young teachers who live in, in households with three generations in it. And they're going, well, if I come back into work, I have an elderly grandparent living at home. What do I do about that? You know, we've got uh, staff members who uh, are in a vulnerable group for whatever reason. They've got, you know, respiratory issues and so on, or they live with someone with respiratory issues, or they've got a kid with respiratory issues. So the concern is not that teachers are afraid of risk to themselves, by and large. It's about the communities in which we're in. And, 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 to, and I know Claire's acknowledged that it is more complicated, and I do appreciate that. So I think that's something to bear in mind. It isn't, it isn't necessarily that individual teachers or even teachers as a whole are averse to risk themselves. It's they are concerned for their communities. We very much see ourselves as part of our communities. And I think that's from where the motivation stems, to be cautious about urging wider reopening. Um, I've I, I spoken a wee bit long here, so I'll just respond to one more thing. Yeah. I guess on Claire's point about why listen to the, the BMA or, or the NHS, um, again, it isn't, it isn't that these are sacralized things. And I, 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 I agree completely with the point that um, protecting the NHS at all costs, uh, you know, good hearts love, you know, when a, when a measure becomes a target, it becomes a useless measure. You know, when, when it's about protecting the NHS and ignoring what's happening in care homes, that's an outrage. So, but but also following on from that, if you observe the carnage that seems to be happening in care homes, you have to understand why people are a little bit cautious. A government that overseen that crisis and um, don't feel convinced or that the argument has been won about why they're reopening. So I guess it's just to respond to two of those things. I'll hopefully try to get back to some of them. I'll do my best. Thanks. Cheers. Uh, so um, we're going to take a bunch of questions or comments now. Um, so I'm going to take Toby Marshall first, then Noah Keats, um, and then Joanna uh, Williams. So, uh, Toby? working? Yeah. Hello, uh, Toby. A bit crunchy, Toby. You're okay. Big okay. uh, Um I just wanted to just say a few things about. Um, 16 education um, and I just want to preface my comments by saying I am a, a union member I'm not a union official but I've been a union member my whole time that I've been working um, I voted for strike at every opportunity over 20 years um, and I you know I generally back my union but I, I, I think we're in a very dangerous situation for 16 educators where if we don't get back to work there will be no work to get back to it's a really exceptionally dangerous situation. And I think we need to get in there, uh, make our voice heard, start making demands of government um, and showing our uh, value. I mean, th there is a shift to online education. Um, they could massively cut the hours uh, for course delivery for students. Um, and, you know, the concept of online education is being proved at this moment. I don't think it's quality. I think it's on the cheap. Um, but there's, you know, why have four year, four hours a week for A level? Why not have one teacher um, teaching very large groups of students, uh, and that becoming the, the the way forward? So I think from a trade union point of view, 
we need to get back to work to secure our work. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I do endorse the comments where people say, I think the government's been dreadful. It's, it's scared people to hell throughout this pandemic. Um, and I think in a way, we need to be better than government. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe for a short period of time, the flexible enrichment curriculum, um, because we're not going to get all students back in in this moment. And, and in certain particular circumstances and, and postcodes, it, it has been a war zone. You know, a lot of people have been hurt. A lot of families have been disrupted. Um, but we just have to get back in there and start making our demands for delivering education. You know, ask the government, this is what we need to do our job. Thank you. Um, so, uh, Noah, um, I'm unmuting you now. Brilliant. Hello. Um, good evening, everyone. A really insightful thoughts from the panellists, especially as a, a university student that's had their third term uh, sadly cancelled. Um, just a few points from me. Uh, we talked a lot this evening about unions, and I wondered if the panellists could discuss sort of what's the role between unions protecting both their members, but also considering the needs of the wider community, like uh, children and parents. Um, I also wondered if they could uh, develop more on the point about risk aversion and what are proportionate um, safety measures, but what might be seen as sort of disproportionate or over the top. Uh, finally, I wonder whether they could discuss sort of how we move on from getting back to schools, um, but moving the debate onto what is taught in schools, so whether the national curriculum needs to be renewed, what's the content and A-levels and GCSEs, and how really um, lots of the online learning that's taking place on Zoom and Teams can be further utilised um, in schools once they are fully returned. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Noah. Um, and Joanna, you've been unmuted. Thank and you. Then we'll go to Jill and Gail. Okay, thank you. Um, so I really agree with the point that Connor was making about teachers seeing themselves as um, public servants and teaching as a public service and being very much grounded and leaders in their local community. But it seems to me that uh, one point of confusion here is is just what exactly the role of the teacher is. And it seems to me that it's become so bound up in in welfare and student well-being, if you like, and, and a broader um, idea of community well-being if you expand that into this role as public servant for the community. So I've been reading quite a lot of press coverage around this, having quite a lot of interactions with teachers. And you look at some of the things that teachers have been doing, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced and agree with the points people have been making about how hard teachers have been working. Um, but on top of um, setting work for students to complete at home, uh, teachers have been delivering food boxes, food parcels to students who live in families without enough food, um, making personal protective equipment for hospitals, loaning out minibuses to help key workers get to work, delivering sanitary protection to girls having periods in need of sanitary protection, um, phoning children at risk. And I'm sure when you're doing all of these things day in, day out, you're absolutely convinced that your role is a leader in the community, that you're a public servant. But what you're not doing is actually teaching in most of those things. And I think the other side of it then, the side that Claire was uh, getting at about the people who have previously been arguing very vociferously for knowledge, it seems to me that one problem there is there's such a degraded view of what this means in terms of getting students through exams and exam passes, again, perhaps for social mobility or for making kids more employable in the long run. And I do wonder once that exam 
uh, motivation had gone out of the window with the cancelling of exams, where that left uh, teaching in terms of, well, what's the motivation for this? Why are we doing this? What's, what's the um, sense of purpose? So, yeah, I think teachers definitely see themselves as public servants, definitely leaders, confusion about what the role of the teacher is, um, and that's all being made, that's a long-standing confusion, but it's being made so much more intense now with where we're at today. Thank you, Joanna, and we're going to go to Jill. Um, speak. Hello, Jill. Jill, are you there? All right, okay, we'll maybe try again in a minute. But um, Gail, I think you're up next. If uh, I'll, I'll meet you, well, actually. Um, yeah. Hello, Gail. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm a primary school teacher uh, in Perth, Western Australia. Now, um, I'm not a government stooge, uh, definitely, but I've been really impressed at the way our government has taken a lead on this. And, and obviously that lead has come from listening to the data um, because it's changing, it's changed all the time. Um, for example, I think teachers initially were pretty afraid because they have this, we have this idea that children are super spreaders. But once the data came in, we realised that actually they're not uh, super spreaders of this virus. They, they can be of influenza. So I think it was a, the teacher's reaction was, are you kidding me? You want us to uh, teach in a classroom with 30 kids with this virus and, and we know how children spread, the, uh, spread um, viruses. But once we learned that, uh, you know, this wasn't the case with this virus, um, our, our government stood up and said, right, no social distancing. And, of course, the union went ballistic uh, but they, they they couldn't mount a strong argument, and they don't really didn't really have the public support or really, um, you know, the support of teachers. But teachers were kind of like you know a little bit more prepared to listen to the government on this, and they basically did ignore the union, uh, despite the fact that they put a full page public advert to say, "Do not go back; it's not safe." But it became a bit of a joke because. It is safe. It's not um, teachers um, are not putting themselves at risk by going back to school because we know that they're not dying. The kids aren't dying. Um, who's dying? It's um, it's uh, people, unhealthy people, um, and people you know predominantly over the age of eighty years old. And even though we've had less deaths than than you guys in the UK. Um, it's it's affecting the same people in the same way. It's affecting um, people with comorbidities and and you know people who are in um, you know who are infirm. Um, so once we got that sorted out, and and the social distancing was like, well, we can't go back because we can't social distance. We know that. So the government just stood up and said no social distancing, and um, they basically gave gave parents the option. Like we've been back five weeks. For three weeks, they gave uh, parents the option. We'll provide online learning, but you can send your kids to school. Everyone can come back to school. Now, we had uh, started off with 60% attendance in that first week. Second week, it went up to 77. By the third week, we had 88% attendance, voluntary. Parents started to. It was, like, it was like a herd mentality. Parents started to see everyone's bringing the kids back. Right, we should bring the kids back. Uh, you know, the sky didn't fall in. You know, it, it's, uh, nothing's happened. Everything's been, been great. Um, so now we mandated it uh, a week ago. We mandated. We've got 100% attendance. Staff are relaxed. We, we have to social distance with the staff. 
but that's not a problem um, because it's all falling apart anyway because everyone's more relaxed, um, no one's worried. We're, we're not even staff, staff are kind of, you know, not, not, we're not tiptoeing around each other anymore. It's, um, yeah, we've come back to normal and it's, uh, it's a really great feeling and I just cannot understand why um, uh, other countries have this idea that schools are dangerous places for teachers and kids because that's not what the data tells us. Okay. Um, Thank you. That's great. Thank you. So uh, we've got Joan um, next and then Alka. Uh, Joan, hello. Here I am, yes. Um, Yeah, no, thanks everyone. And and thanks particularly to Gail. That was really interesting. Um, I was going to start by saying um, my response to um, the NEU in particular, but the teaching unions, was quite similar to what Claire's described in her sort of um, shock, really. Um, and I, w- I was a teacher until 16 years ago. I left one of the people who left the profession. Um, but I, while I was teaching, I was all, virtually always, from the very early days, a union rep at the very least and quite active within a trade union. And the, when it worked best was when, as trade union reps, we had very good um, communication and, and um, respect within our membership. And then also when negotiating with uh, management or local authority, um, the, the, we, were, if in, we, weren't work, we weren't toadies, but we, we could get problems solved. Um, and it, it's part of what I think being um, workers in control is, is, is being prepared to um, get to grips with what the problems are. I mean, uh, and not leave it to managers, not leave it in particular to the government, but actually we know best. It's having professional pride that comes from respect for managers as well, because that is a skill, but huge respect for the teachers and for the people we're providing the service for. So having left the profession, I was utterly shocked to hear uh, a teaching union telling its members not to engage with um, any, any, any moves from, from their head teacher or local, local authority about making those plans about how you get back. And I thought what Gail just said was just wonderful, but also hope, hope there'd be a lot of teachers here of a similar um, tendency to, to not agree with what the trade unions are saying. I hope they're out of step as much as it felt to me. But also it was great to hear what Josephine was saying, you know, that that, um, that is what professionalism is. It is, you know what your service is, you don't take risks, but equally you don't go down some stupid route of expecting a handbook, um, as Ryan Price said, <laughs> that, that then everybody gets gets bollocks over because they're not doing, or you end up saying pay us because, and to stay at home because you, somebody out there, hasn't got it sorted so, so I think not just in education, but throughout the country, this situation alone offers us a huge opportunity to, to, to actually get in charge. Don't, 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 don't wait for the government to do it. Let us do it. And it might be piecemeal and it might be fragmented and it might be a mess at times. But the more we do it, the more other people will have confidence. Thanks. And um, Alka, uh, over to you. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, well, I agree with a lot of what um, the way Toby's posed it and uh, what um, what Joan was just saying. I mean, I, I was dismayed at um, 
the NEU's, NEU's reaction. It just seemed so negative and starting from a, a real entrenched, um, politicised refusal to even consider what, you know, to, to consider engaging with the government, but not even consider what they're meant to be, who they're meant to be representing, which are <coughs> teachers. And it reminded me, um, my, it reminded me of like when I was reading about the 1980s and the tussle of the governments and the unions then. And what was tragic then was that there was nobody there standing up for the voice of education, right? It was workers' interests versus government's interests. And we are workers, but we are also teachers. And I think we have a certain special, a, a unique status and a unique function and a role um, because of that. And for me, that's the primary thing that, that has really been um, lost in this. I mean, Connor, you talked about schools are nodes of a risk in a risk network. I mean, I find that a, a, a weird description and rather kind of sinister because, you know, I mean, why not think of schools as sites where of, you know, um, exemplars of different values, a different set of values? Why not, you know, we know the government is completely um, rudderless in terms of leadership. It's been contra contradictory and weak and cowardly and all the rest of it. But yet, what do we do then? Do we just wait and wait for them to listen to us? Do we just do what, you know, Toby was and Claire was saying, was like, just ask them, you know, beg, beg for more of the same. There's no real disagreement between the NEU and the government. They're both promoting the safety principle above judgment. Surely as educators who are meant to be dealing with knowledge and ideas and values, we can say, no, our value is education. We want to go back. You know, let's work out a way of getting back. And I just want to quickly end on, you know, I'm an English teacher and so and I think we can learn from literature. And I've read Camus and Roth recently, unsurprisingly, from Camus take the plague is life. And this isn't even the plague. It's less than the plague. And the way you deal with it is through decency. You don't need heroism. You just need decency to do your job. That's Dr. Rio, if any of you are familiar with it. And Philip Roth just says that brilliant quote of fear unmans and degrades us. Right. And this is what is happening. So we could, as teachers and as public servants, we should take a positive view of public service, not a negative one where we where we kind of turn it on its head and say we're doing a public service by in and down. No, we do a public service by showing we know what our job is and wanting to get on with it. Cheers, Elka. It does seem like we're getting a bit of a consensus, uh, both on the, the, the audio and the chat, that um, you know teachers could be leading the way, and and unions maybe not um, are not being as uh, positive about this as, as possible. So, I mean, I don't. That's not a view that's in any way representative of of the parents and teachers I know outside this this chat. Um, so I'm interested, you know, if you want to defend what the unions are doing um, or the approach that's been taken up to now, please put your hands up and, and let us hear from you. Um, so um, next we're going to go to Steve Roberts. Then I'm going to um, take a turn, uh, putting my audience hat on for a second, um, and then we'll come back, I think, to Claire and Connor. Uh, Steve, I'm trying to unmute you. There you go. Yeah, hi. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Um, cards on the table. I'm not an educator. Um, in terms of the virus and what's happened, I've been a, shall we say, dissenter right from the very beginning, from the outset, absolutely. Um, and that's where I am today, and that's why I'm interested in this discussion. Um, and I've listened to, lo to lots of, of you guys, and 
I think the way to go, the only way to go to resolve this, these divisions between not just teachers, but the division between teachers and parents and the wider society. And I think Gail Reed's made the best contribution tonight. She's obviously quite fortunate. She's got a government in Australia that's taken the lead, showed some political now, showed some leadership and some bravery and done exactly what is needed. Because everything else I've read and much of what I've heard from other people tonight, if I weren't a dissenter, none of you have convinced me that we should go back to school. I would have to say, although I completely disagree with Connor, his arguments are more convincing. And I think that's the problem here. It's no good making out a special case for education or not understanding the hegemony that existed when this all kicked off. And I don't think it it's, carries any substance at all to say that teachers aren't special when other key workers and all these other arguments. I think all these arguments are going halfway and do not overcome the divisions that I spoke about at the beginning. The only way to overcome all these divisions is to have the arguments out full on and explain why schools should completely open without social distancing, as Gail Reed explained. This can be done, the arguments can be, can be won, we can cut across the divisions, but it's no good going halfway and making compromises because it doesn't work. Because what's happening now in this education debate is a microcosm of what's happening in society. And we need to overcome the divisions that the government has created through the fear it's created. I mean, I'll just I'll finish off very quickly. I'll give you another example. I have a grandson that's 12. Our family are all completely dissented. We've, we've bent the lockdown rules as much as we possibly can to maintain our social and political insanity as a family. He's not in a family where there's a lack of resilience. We are not a snowflake family. Anyone that knows me, that's the case. But we are genuinely concerned that he, if he has to go back to school with social distancing and all the other attributes that people and educators have been talking about tonight, honestly, we don't want him going back into that environment. That is an environment with social distancing that is instilling fear into our children. We need to have these arguments out, stop social distancing, open the schools, make alliances with people, teachers and parents who want to do that and push forward as John was alluding to a little. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Josephine, you wanted to come in, I think, with a very quick uh, follow-up question. If you're very quick, you can go now. Thank you. I just wanted to ask, um, who should teachers have solidarity with? Um, because I, I, I was torn. Um, I wanted to have solidarity with other teachers, which um, is what Connor is asking and the unions are asking. But my head teacher is pushing for freedom to open schools and I feel the need to have solidarity with her. So I just thought it'd be very useful here um, to talk about, well, who should we have solidarity with? Cheers. Um, OK, so I, I'm just going to put my audience hat on for a second. Forgive me um, uh, and say what I would have said if I, if I wasn't chairing. Um, so uh, and then we'll go back to Claire and Connor and then we'll have time for at least another round. Um, but um, I, I've been thinking about a comment that Claire made at the last forum um, about 
showing uh, moral bravery as opposed to physical bravery. And I've been thinking about what that might mean. There was a blog that came out or, um, that people were sharing a lot a couple of weeks back called um, I Want to Go Back to School. And it was a guy saying desperately wants to get back to teaching, really burning him up being in lockdown. Um, but he said, you know, the problem is uh, just because I want something doesn't mean it's the right thing to do, echoing what Connor was saying. Um, but he ends up saying, um, you know, it's an assessment, when to go back is an assessment of whether or not it's safe. I don't think it's safe it's a really honest heartfelt article but it did beg the question why doesn't he think it's safe you know it's not a neutral thing um that, that you know you can take look at the evidence um that's mounting up and you can take an optimistic or a pessimistic view of it it seems to me um and right now we're in a situation where no one knows what's right what the real truth is uh, but so when things are uncertain do we gravitate towards the best case or the worst case scenario uh, and it seems to me that the evidence is generally mounting up saying that it's broadly probably the risk of going back is low that's my optimistic view of it but you know you can always find evidence reports that say the opposite and it seems to me teachers generally are tending to fixate on the negative evidence and sort of speculating about what might go wrong second third waves things that haven't even happened like yet like the, how the virus might mutate and doesn't that sort of pes pessimism and negativity rub off on children um you know they might turn out to be right but you know this, it maybe this is the question what do you do in these situations where you don't know i think it's better to err on the side of optimism pessimism can be self-defeating we know that in normal life um but anyway and optimism is hard it can be difficult to cultivate but you know when in our own lives when friends are down when we our friends are feeling down we encourage them we paint a brighter picture about the future and we hope they'll do the same for us you know, we all need a bit of encouragement and optimism about the future right now. So going back all the way back to Claire's point, maybe that moral bravery that she was talking about means, you know, when things are tough, taking the decision to be optimistic. Um, and that sets an example others might follow. And then hopefully in time, that optimism will turn out to be borne out, been borne out by events. But anyway, that's me taking my audience mem member hat off. And Claire, I'm going to unmute you now. Um, here you go. Uh, some some great contributions, lots of food for thought. Um, one of the, one of the things that that Connor said, um, and that I think has been reflected in a few points that have been made, is and and Josephine just asked who you're showing solidarity with. I think that the initial uh, reactions to the to the pandemic internationally um, were appropriately an act of social solidarity and an act of altruism with vulnerable people with other people who you feared could get this virus and die it wasn't just fear you know i think actually sometimes we overstate that people are frightened because i think uh, connor's absolutely right about this people aren't frightened for themselves but they're frightened for their communities for their families you know they don't want to be the source of uh, somebody else dying and they want they this was a a, a serious uh, public health crisis a serious virus not to be underestimated you know in that in that regard i disagree i suppose with steve roberts uh, in, in relation to that i think uh, measures taking measures that are appropriate is fine but where i also agree with steve is that it's got uh, taken it's gone beyond that and it's actually started to paralyze and de 
mobilize people and they've lost their they're not using their judgment so when connor says you know what if you've got an elderly grandparent at home or what if you live in a multi-generational house or you're living with someone who's got an underlying condition then they are obviously exceptional circumstances i would expect teachers in those circumstances to say i'm not prepared to risk it and and I could imagine a scenario where there is a flexibility where you do that. I mean, I saw some parents interviewed on the telly the day and they said, my, one, my daughter's got asthma and the other one needs a, 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 um, sorry, a liver transplant. And I thought, don't send them back to school. This is not a thing to do, right? I, I get that you might well, in the situation where the pandemic is still around, even though it's proved to be, uh, less threatening, it seems, to the general population, that one would do that. What, what Those arguments that Connor put forward are very convincing, but they're not the arguments that have been generally used by the teachers' union. You know, if, if they said, we're going to solve the problem, we're going to open the schools, but we're going to demand that teachers who, who, who feel that they don't want to put somebody at risk because they're in a household of that nature won't do that, then don't do that. But what I was trying to say about going back to normal or some sense of going back to normal, first of all, there's a difference between the first few weeks when we didn't know what we were dealing with and now. There's more knowledge, more data now. And secondly, um, the, the, the reality is, is that throughout this, other people have carried on working. I mean, you can't underestimate there are millions of people had to work, right? They had to do things in order for the lockdown to carry on. And they also got grandparents, you know, they're also in the community. They weren't being irresponsible when they were going off to, you know, make the bread that we all then buy from the supermarket in the factory. They weren't all going off doing that. So all I was trying to say was that if our aspiration is to problem solve, the problem of the fact that young people are not being taught, then you do what Jones suggested. And I think that the reason why Jones' contribution was very important is because it's sometimes posed that those of us who are saying this are into are anti-union, whereas actually that's just not true, right? Most of us were trade union activists whilst we were working in education. I was too, right? That's what you were. We, we, we're more surprised that the union is playing this uh, particular role at the moment. And then my final thought, which is, um, Connor said something very important, though, that, that just in terms of the general thing, and I think Noah asked the question about, you know, what could you get out of all this? I, what I would have liked also to have seen was, was a, a, you know, a conversation. I think um, it's one of the people in one of the education groups, I think somebody who's here called Ian, made a really good point, which is, you know, if the union's going to demand something, they should demand that you get rid of all the data crunching and the paperwork when you go back to school. You know, you get rid of all the extraneous nonsense that goes on in schools that every teacher hates. So many people have left education because they cannot stand the fact that they're not given enough time and autonomy to teach on their own, using their teaching discretion. And it just seems to me that that would be a very productive use of this to reprioritize. Now, all I'm saying is, is that the teaching unions and the teaching profession, even though uh, Connor can be irritated and he's right to be irritated, he's working his guts out and he's doing all this stuff. But I'm saying from a professional point of view or from a worker's point of view, whatever way you want to do it, I would say that what is not going to come out of the present moment is that teachers are going to have more autonomy. They're not going to be given more autonomy because their leadership is basically saying we want more rules and we want more protection and we want to be looked after. And that doesn't strike me as boding well 
for being able to demand that the government butt out in the future of anything else. I would fight every single government who tried to sack a teacher in the confusion of this moment. They've created a lot of the panic around this pandemic, unless, you know, I think over the top in many instances. But on the other hand, it's also not going to be solved by demanding that you, or, or getting into a straitjacket of demanding that the government solve this problem. That, that's really what I was saying. And my public service moral point is don't forget what we're meant to be doing, which is teaching. That isn't that the point. And I think that that is a vocation that goes beyond. Steve can say, you know, stop making exceptions for teachers. This is the education forum. All I'm saying is pride in one's work as a teacher is that you believe you're doing something special. You've got a generation to have responsibility for. That's what has driven education for years. And it seems to have been sorely absent from too much of the debate initiated by the professional bodies of teachers in this pandemic. Cheers, Claire. Um, so, Connor, uh, you, you're up next. But you might have to unmute yourself. Brilliant. There you go. Yeah, thanks everyone for, I mean, some really, really interesting points. Obviously, some I agree with, some less so. Um, just quickly resp to respond to Claire. Yeah, I think that point that Ian had made before and that he agreed with about increasing teacher autonomy and making some demands about some of the nonsense that we have to do. Uh, no disagreement from me, from me there. I mean, I, my experience of the union is prior to all this, that was one of the things that we were regularly campaigning about was, you know, increased teacher autonomy. And I would be very worried, not just in terms of teacher autonomy, but also personal autonomy, if any of the measures that came in uh, as part of this process or after were used to decrease any of our individual professional autonomy or just personal autonomy through wider society. So I don't think we'd necessarily have an argument there. And if I thought that we were making arguments that decreased our professional autonomy, I would obviously within my local union argue against those. Um, so, so, so there's, you know, there's a point of agreement there. Um, and I'll try and address uh, some of the other points. Uh, briefly, another thing that, that Claire had mentioned about sort of the shielding of the vulnerable. I mean, I know it, it sounds it's like it's an exceptional circumstance, but in my school, in my community, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was less exceptional than you might think. Um, it was actually incredibly common to live in multi-generational households or to live with someone who has asthma or to live with an elderly person. And um, it didn't apply to me. Hence, you know, I'm willing to go in on the road and so on. And I worked up to the last day, but um, of, of the normal opening. Um, but it, yeah, it's definitely less exceptional than I would possibly think. And because it doesn't apply to me, it can, and it can also surprise me just to the extent to which people were reasonably concerned about circumstances themselves or, or their, their family and so on. So it's possibly less exceptional. Um, but I don't know what it's like outside of inner London, for example. Um, just to respond to a couple of the other ones, uh, I mean, Gail, you know, obviously very sincere and, uh, you know, come across the arguments before. Australia is a very difficult case and, you know, we heard this phrase a lot, you can't make international comparisons and so on. You can probably make some, you can probably make some. Um, Australia's per capita death rate is 0.41 per 100,000. The UK's per capita death rate is 55 per 100,000. So you're talking it's almost 100 times higher. Um, so our starting point for, for a wider opening is very, very different. And your starting point in terms of how pandemics work, it is quite a, an important point. And I wouldn't, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be cavalier with that. Uh, in terms of the question as to who it is that's dying, kids aren't dying. Um, it's old people and it's sick people, people with comorbidities. I, I care about people with 
you're old and have comorbidities. My grandparents are both still alive in Belfast. I haven't been able to see them this entire time. I'd normally be going back at Easter. I, I would quite like them to have a few more years if there's a chance. Now, what do we know about years of life lost? Well, the Welcome, uh, Welcome Trust have done a piece of research on years of life lost in the UK. And what they found is that when you control for comorbidities, it's about a decade of life lost on average for people who die of coronavirus. Um, uh, it's, I think it's 13 years for men and 11 for women when you control for comorbidities. So that's a decade. 60,000 excess deaths. A decade on average for each. That's a lot of human years lost. I'd like to see those people around for a little bit longer. And that's something that I don't think anybody else has mentioned, that the 60,000 excess deaths in 2.5 months. I don't think that's trivial. I think that really is worth talking about. And it isn't central to the conversation. And I guess that puzzles me. Um, I'll respond to one more thing. Um, yes, uh, uh, Alka's point uh, about uh, me saying schools as nodes on a contagion network. Obviously, that's not how I see a school. I've been in school every single week. I was teaching up to the last day. That's not how I see a school. But that is how schools operate in terms of epidemiology. And um, what come back from China a couple of weeks ago showed that school closures had a significant impact on delaying the spread. Published in a, a, a paper published in Science a couple of weeks ago in France said that the, the, their lockdown measures, including social distancing, had a significant impact on reducing transmissibility in the community. Research just published in a preprint this week from Israel said that it reduced our R value by two thirds. These are by no means trivial numbers. These are really, really important. And um, I, in terms of just one more thing about uh, somebody mentioned Tamu, I think it was I mean, it was Alka actually. Um, yeah, that's quite interesting. You know, the, you know, there's a I mentioned it in a previous meeting that in the in the movie version of of the plague. I don't think it's in the book, but towards the end you have Taru's character talking about you know once once the the lockdown measures. In, in, in the book start ending. Uh, there's a bit where Taru says, you know, everyone back to work, back to work, pushing the boulder up the hill, you know, obviously alluding to the myth of Sisyphus. And that's in the movie version. And part of me feels like there's a little bit of that. Let's get back to work. Let's get back to normal. Let's get pushing that boulder up the hill. And I, I would sort of like to think about where that's going to take us afterwards. And just on the on the notion of the agency and, and if we're talking about Camus and existentialism, Ken and Malik wrote quite a nice... Quick, quickly, quickly. Yes, I have 30 seconds. Um, yeah. Ken and Malik wrote quite a nice article on the, uh, at the weekend and where he talks about, you know, the notion of the agency and he's relating it to Viktor Frankl. And he says, you know, one of the, one of the strengths of, of existentialism, if we're talking about Camus, is obviously the insistence on the importance of individual freedom and making choices. If that's where its strength lies, its weaknesses lie in its difficulty in relating our individual agency to our existence as social beings. So it's only through uh, our social bonds that we make that our individual individuality emerges. So my freedom doesn't really mean a lot if, if I'm not taking account of the community in which I find myself. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, thanks. So I can see I'm going to have to go and read The Plague. Um, Ian, uh, we have next. Now we're getting towards the end, so we need everyone to speed up a bit and try and make their comments nice and pithy so we can get as many people in uh, before we come back to Claire and uh, Connor for the final thoughts. Uh, so we've got Ian, then Natalie, and then uh, Gareth. Uh, Ian, over to you. Okay, thank you. Um, I should probably comment on that uh, email that Claire and Con was referring to, first of all. Um, as soon as I'd written it, I realised, because um, why I basically said, well, I'm surprised the unions aren't um, using this opportunity to argue a few cases that maybe they've been talking about for years to do with getting rid of some things in teaching that, that gets teachers down and makes them stressed and increases the workload. But then, of course, I realised I'm only doing what some of the 
any EU executives are doing, which is to politicise, use this as an opportunity to force through um, things. But so um, I still do think that, though. I think that um, there's a bit of a vacuum and there's an opportunity um, to uh, maybe restructure the role of the teacher. Um, I also just feel that there's a lot of um, conformity in education now um, and people are quite scared just to not just of the coronavirus but just to have a view um and to to I, I don't really know what a lot of people are thinking i'm not really sure what a lot of parents are thinking um when i see pictures of people crowding out the beaches i think well you're probably ready to send your children to school but um are, are, is that what people really think i'm not really sure um and i read an article in spite which suggested that on the one hand people um are not conforming to the rules of the lockdown but on the other hand they're saying they are so there is a bit of a problem i think maybe in education where people just don't feel they can say what they really mean so we can get to the point where we can find out what people think um i i can certainly say i don't i i think the safety thing has gone too far and i think there are too many people now who are trying to outstrip each other to make to to, to show how safe they can be more than the next person so you've now got teachers talking about PPE uh, for all mainstream teachers, which I don't, I, I can't see the logic of that. The idea of having uh, the floor like a crime scene with this tape everywhere, you know, I, I, again, you're going to suck all the fun out of education for a start, like they're doing with retail. I mean, who wants to go shopping for fun now with all that going on? Um, so I, I think there's a, it, I think safety is winning, but I think there has to come a point where, we have an honest discussion about it and say, well, I think it's just gone too far and this might be the case. I know the big fear is nobody wants to be part of that school community where everyone goes back and then we find out that somebody in that community has died possibly as a result of an infection. Nobody wants that. Um, but the problem is, is that there's a, there's a whole generation of children losing out um, because no, no one wants to take that risk to go back and, 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 and that's probably having a detrimental effect on a greater majority. But it, I, I, get, I get it's a tough ethical okay. issue. It's a Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. And that was a really good contribution, but I wouldn't say that was what counts as short. <laughs> but anyway. Sorry so, about that. Uh, so uh, just uh, to keep, make sure you set up expectations for everyone else, we're going to Natalie next. Uh, Natalie, I'm trying to unmute you. There you go. Hello, everyone. Um, I've got three children, um, two at secondary school, one at primary school, uh, two girls and a boy. And can I just say thank you to Connor, actually, for going in to school and volunteering, because I think that's amazing. Um, and I just wanted to say, really, the experience, I, I, I can't believe that they, to say all the kids are supposedly on the same curriculum, my children have had such a different experience from, say, my brother's kids, who live in a you know, a completely different county to me who are a lot more vulnerable than my children who arguably would need school more. They are vulnerable, so they could actually go into school, but the parents aren't taking them into school. And I just think it's been, their experience of homeschooling has been so much different from my kids, um, you know, in the sense that my niece hasn't got a laptop, so she can't access online schooling, and there's been no follow-up from the school, and, and the parents aren't particularly proactive so I would just think if this is going to rumble on, which it could do, and I'm not in any way, you know, desperate to get my kids back to school, not, not just, for, you know, for safety reasons, I would rather them go back when they can enjoy the full experience. 
and not have this crippling anxiety about going to get coronavirus. But either way, I'm quite easy about it. But my worry is that if we're going to do it, surely all the children need to be on a, we all need to be on an even playing field. You know, my niece is far more vulnerable than my 10-year-old little boy who is getting this full range of homeschooling, PE with Joe Wicks, you know, football. He's getting, he's getting pretty much everything other than the social aspect. And my niece hasn't had any education for six weeks and she's had no phone call from a teacher. And that's absolutely breaking my heart. And surely we, this needs to be addressed. I'm not saying by the teachers or by the unions, but by someone somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you. Um, Gareth, um, you're, you're next. Okay, thank you. Can you hear me okay? Yep. Yep. Um, so I haven't been reading uh, The Plague, but I've been reading Defoe's uh, Diary of the Plague Year. And something that's really come out of that for me is the concept of duty. Um, it's really uh, very early on, he sets up this conflict between his duty to his business, should he stay in the city or should he get out and uh, and stay safe? And And I think this idea of duty is something that we have to take a long look at in our society. Um, I think risk is inherent in giving duty meaning. So if we, if we want to have a concept of duty, but we try and have that without risk, we, we, we can't have that. Um, and Connor was saying it's, it's in the nature of pandemics uh, to have this kind of social dimension. I think it's in the nature of pandemics for an antagonism to develop between duty and safety. And we just didn't anticipate that. Um, certainly when I saw this coming on, I thought, well, at some point I'm going to have to choose between what I should be doing, what's right to do and what will be safe to do. And I'm not saying that I'm special. I'm saying that more people, we could have done better if more people had anticipated that. Um, duty requires a social basis to develop. Connor again was talking about um, the, the social element of, of, of pandemics duty requires a social basis and i've been calling for a long time for uh volunteers to go in and educate maybe just retired teachers and, and those that are willing to do so and people have been saying well you can't have like a scab army you know if you can't have teachers going in if the unions are telling their members not to but it's not a ballot it's not industrial action and i don't think it's even legal to to do that under the coronavirus legislation so that kind of gives you an opportunity to say those who are happy to take on that risk should do so. And I think the point about duty having a social dimension is that the more that one sees other people enacting their duty, uh, the more one begins to have faith in the concept of duty and sees that duty is uh, more important than safety and frankly i would prefer a society that's orientated around values such as duty than merely around safety um, and i'll conclude by saying that i think the teachers just need to be very aware that in two you've seen how much the virus has changed in two weeks uh, previous in two weeks time or by the middle of june this whole context in society is going to look very different. The shops are going to be open. Social distancing will become uh, something that people pay lip service to. And in that context, I think if teachers are still saying it's too unsafe for us to go back to work, they, they're not going to command the support of, uh, of the, the public. And when the cancer uh, death scandal emerges... Um, in terms of the sheer number of people that that's going to have affected, I think 
in all seriousness, given how many people suffer with that every year, that's going to dwarf even the, the care homes scandal. So I think in, you know, by the end of July, we could be in a very, very different situation socially. Thank you, uh, Gareth. Um, and uh, we will take uh, Stuart Baird uh, now and then Alex Standish. Um, Stuart, you've been unmuted. Hopefully. Stuart, are you there? Okay, um, we'll go to Alex then. If it will let me. Alex, you're going to have to unmute yourself. There you yeah, go. I've got it. Okay, thanks, Harley. Um, yeah, I'm a teacher educator. Um, yeah, uh, Gareth, I uh, really agree with lot, lots of what you said. Um, and it, uh, but it, I, I guess I wanted to come back to something Claire said um, right early on about how um, she would have liked uh, teachers and schools to respond um, and how they did and how she's disappointed that they were so um, risk averse. And I, I, I agree with you, but um, on the other hand, um, given that uh, schools are, um, so much institute have become so much institutions um, of uh, well, they've institutionalised risk aversion. Uh, that is their culture and um, protecting vulnerable children, um, such that they can't even sometimes they can't even go on school trips um, or invite certain speakers in and so forth. So um, I guess we should. I'm, I'm not at all surprised at how they did respond. Um, and you know, aren't we asking them to do something? that they just aren't really set up for today, which is, uh, or are you asking them to do something which they aren't set up for today, which is to push back against this um, risk averse culture. So I think I think we should distinguish between, um, you know, school as an institution and then maybe teachers, because I think the only way to do that is, is individuals making arguments, individuals coming forth. So uh, a bit like Gareth said, or even head teachers have said, come out and said, you know, we're going to start, our, we're going to open on the, the 1st of June or, or the 15th of June. Um, so, um, and I, but I agree with your points about, um, I think, I think one way to make an argument to appeal to teachers is to, is in terms of their responsibility and leadership for young people, because that's, that's why, um, you know, a lot of teachers are in the, in the job. So I think, um, and, and, you know, what we, what no one said tonight so far is what about the consequences um, of children being stuck at home, being told by adults that you can't go outside, you can't meet your friends, you can't even answer the door or pick up a letter because it might be contaminated. You know, this 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 risk averse culture has, has got out of hand. Well, you know, let's let's have some adults start to um, push back um, against that and, and show some leadership. Um, let me finish with a question. I mean, Gareth says social distancing will be gone in a couple of weeks. I wish it was, but I, I don't think it will. So, but I just, I just see, isn't that gonna, isn't that, while that's still in place, politically across society, isn't that gonna be a real, real problem for schools getting back, particularly in London where, you know, you've got thousands of people squashed into a school that was built for, you know, three or 400. Okay, thanks. We're going to, so, um, Cara, I'm going to go to next, then we'll try Stuart again and, um, uh, and then I don't know, Josephine. You still got your hand up. I'm not sure if that's from before or not. But um, we, we'll, if everybody's really quick, we can get you all in. Cara. Okay. Um, on Gareth's point about the volunteer teachers, I think isn't that devaluing our profession a little bit to think that? I mean, if anyone 
has had a, a speaker come in to do a workshop. Uh, someone who may be like a great writer or something come in and talk to the kids. They're not teachers. Um, I would certainly be worried if we thought that that was better than getting teachers to come in and do it. And in practice, I think most schools are asking their teachers, um, they're sending surveys out to parents, and they're sending surveys out to teachers and asking them who is going to volunteer. Um, and that's how it's working in practice. So I, don't, I haven't heard or seen in the news any case of a school saying you must come in against all, you know, any concerns you have. So I'm not sure about that point. The main thing I wanted to talk about is this idea of individual teachers leading the way. Um, it's great that Josephine was saying she's happy that she can lead in her school, but I cannot even fathom a case where that's possible for individual teachers in our current the structures of power in schools that we have, where a teacher could just say, here's my solution to the problem of children not having an education. I just, I'm just going to go ahead and do that. It just doesn't seem like any option apart from unions for teachers to be able to lead. So whilst I don't agree with the unions, I really don't know how individual teachers or how teachers can lead without that collective voice of unions. Okay, thank you. Uh, Stuart is having sound problems, so Josephine's going to say something really, really quick, and then um, we'll go to Claire and Connor for their final comments. Cara, I totally and utterly agree with you, and it's been my total frustration throughout this whole period. And I posted something on Facebook where I said, um, I'm happy to go back. I totally understand if teachers are, other teachers aren't, because a lot of people are worried. Um, but I do feel that our voice has been lost um, because of the unions. Um, for the reason that I said, you know, I, I, I grappled with it. I, I wanted to have solidarity with other teachers. I was told by my head not to talk to a journalist um, because I would cause problems and she was trying to get the school open. But the other teachers, head teachers who were on this side of the unions, didn't feel the same. They, they talked to the unions. So I totally agree with you, Cara. Um, we haven't been able to speak. Right, okay, thank you everybody. Um, thank you for all your contributions. Um, so Claire, uh, let's go to you and uh, you are unmuted. Uh, thank you. Uh, honestly, really useful contributions and also I know um, what you say, I actually think it would be really useful if it was a broader conversation and we could have this broader conversation. Um, and that kind of reminded me in relation to what Gareth said about people volunteering to go in and help in schools. In a, in a, I mentioned at the previous uh, education forum, I think when Joe Williams spoke, um, that her article, when she put an article in the Telegraph, the, it led to a real kind of pile on because she was seen to be saying that teachers weren't brave and there was lots of rows and in quite a lot of exchanges I had and that was teachers basically saying she, she shouldn't have said that so that's not a conversation or a debate for staff but anyway that's one side then I had lots of rows with people as a consequence lots of teachers and they said well what are you doing you're just sitting at home being academy of ideas we're going in and teaching yeah, teach. you know, what if you if, if you, if you if you really wanted to help us, you know, why don't you come down and help? And I said, I'd love to, I'd be happy to, 
And I actually think just like an NHS army, I wouldn't mind an education army. Why don't you encourage those uh, uh, undergraduates and postgraduates are all sitting at home doing nothing or, you know, why? I'm OK. Yeah, I'll come in. Carl is right. I don't mean instead of teachers, but, you know, we'll help. And you know what people said to me? What do you know about teaching? Where's your DBS qualification? Where's your QTS? We're not letting you in our schools. So I felt like, well, God almighty, this is kind of a protectionism that, that sort of demands that, you know, and that, 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 that was annoying. Natalie, I think it was Natalie, made the point about her nephews, nieces. or There is not a uniform good education happening across the country at the moment. That is just not happening. And some children are being very ill-served. I'm not getting at the individual teachers. I don't know why it's happened, but it's, not, it's just genuinely true. And when people try and raise that, they are rounded on by people who say, stop teacher bashing. But, you know, you have to be able to say where those things are happening. And I just am surprised that that hasn't been more of a focus is what I said at the beginning. Uh, Alex makes the point very correctly that one of the problems is that schools have almost institutionalised risk aversion. And I go back to what I said at the beginning, which is I do think that there is a problem of cotton wool kids that long predates this pandemic overprotection of children has lessened their resilience not not physical resilience to disease but resilience long documented wrote a book about it all that sort of stuff you know over anxious young people safe space culture at universities and all the rest of it as a consequence of safety being the predominant value in society god knows what they're going to think at the end of this by the way um but therefore i what i'm suggesting is that you know, a counter to that is education, actually. Focus on genuine education. And I, I would have wanted that. Whereas, in fact, and to reassure the young and to tell them not to be scared. That's generally what adults' role is, to tell young people not to be scared. Even when we're scared, we say, don't be scared. You know, if somebody's dying in your family, you don't say to the kids, this is a disaster, scream all over them and tell them that this is the worst thing and that life is shit and that you know and all the rest of it you try and say to those young people we need to be brave and so on and all I'm saying is teachers have a role in that and they aren't playing it and there hasn't been but you know I understand it's not that all teachers blah blah right um just just on Connor's point very important about comorbidities killing people 10 years early uh, uh elderly people not being dispensable with I totally totally agree with you i am not somebody who has been glib about this virus and i think that to say well this is the same as the flu or the same number of people would have died or they've got comorbidity anyway and as he said you know i just went to a covid funeral last week of somebody who although he was 80 was a, a life force who shouldn't have died who had so much more to give it is a tragedy and i would do anything to protect them what I'm saying is, is that in the general clamour that teachers have joined in with for everyone to be equally treated as though they're at risk, we have neglected the people who are most at risk. That's the irony of this whole thing. Such is the clamour for safety first for everyone that the people who are actually genuinely at risk uh, are, are being neglected. And I suppose to finish with a slight joke which is Ian made the point that if we're to have children to return with all these kind of over safety precautionary measures and, and, and as he said, uh, you know, almost like CSI type tape on the floor and stay away from each other. Where's the fun in that? 
I just was interested to note that in Switzerland, sex workers have offered to limit the their customers uh, to, for their customers to limit the positions uh, to the minimum risk positions so that they won't transmit coronavirus. And I just thought, bloody hell! You know, when brothels are going down the safety first room, where's the fun in that? Not that I've ever been to a brothel, but you get my gist. I, I, I'm not suggesting that teachers say, let's go back to school and have the most stringent safety conditions. I'm actually saying it would probably be worth having a few months off school if teachers came up with ways of returning to normal. What I am saying is they're not arguing that. I, I would be happy to say don't start till September if there was a plan. But the plan seems to be to say we're never going back until it's 100% safe. In which case, forget, forget, forget schools ever happening because they'll never be 100% safe. And I do think that, therefore, our obligation is to work out how to solve this problem as a profession and to do so uh, without being part of the fear factor uh, when it comes to young people or each other. Thank you very much, Claire. And, um, and now, Connor, for your final thoughts, please. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's easy to pick up on that last point about, you know, whether schools should be 100% safe. I, I mean, I don't take that. I mean, that's not, I mean, I'm not here to speak on behalf of, of the union, but even my interpretation of the union's five tests is not that things are 100% safe. You know, I'm a science teacher. Have you ever been in a lab with 30 year sevens and Bunsen burners? I understand the notion of risk and I'm happy to jump into a lab. I mean, it won't be 30 by, you know, when we go back, whatever it is. Um, but it's more, it's more that just that, People want to feel reassured, and, and you can argue about whether that's justified. I think it is justified. Want to feel reassured that what they have seen happen in their communities, again, 60,000 excess deaths in two and a half months, 60,000 excess deaths, that something has been done in that time. I mean, I, you could make the argument, and I think actually maybe it follows on from, from the arguments uh, that, that, that Claire has made and other people have made about sort of making these demands for what it would look like to go back so that it is as normal as possible. And you do wonder, sort of in the last eight, nine weeks, you know, however long it's been, I'm losing track of time, that we've been under these distancing measures, what has actually been in place to make us be in a different place when we come out from when we went in. And people aren't convinced by it. And parents and teachers, I mean, there's, uh, I think it was Steve earlier, maybe uh, positioned teachers against parents. I, I don't think that's borne out by most of the data. It certainly wasn't borne out in the community that I, that I live and work in. Uh, uh, parents were pulling their kids out of school a week and a half before the schools actually closed. So, um, and then I think a bunch of the surveys, Daily Mirror did a survey of 42,000 responses and something like 80% of parents didn't feel safe, certainly for the June 1st opening. Um, I know that NASUWT, they did a survey of the teachers, 85% didn't feel safe to go back. So I would say, broadly speaking, the teaching profession and the parents are still are both uncomfortable about going back. And I guess point that I would make is that in this whole time, the two months where we've been under these distancing measures and partial closure, it doesn't seem like a lot has happened to change the situation in terms of stopping a rise in reinfection. And I think that that's, that's probably one of the biggest concerns that people have. Um, just to respond to maybe to something else, I, I guess I'll pick up on Hardy's point about pessimism versus optimism, because I think it's a good one. It's a, and it's a fair point to make. I am, I'm optimistic. Well, what, you know, I, I think we can beat this. I think we have human ingenuity. I think we're very smart. We have brilliant science. We will eventually get get over this, but we actually have to do something in, to, to make that happen. And, that, and we see that, you know, countries that have beaten it have had excellent test, track and tr test, trace, track, isolate in place, and they've had to do with fairly minimal lockdowns. Um, some modeling just came out last week saying that, you know, if we'd locked down a week earlier, 
we you know uh, something like thirty thousand of their lives may have been saved. And I mean, uh, people will say, "Well, that's a modeling study." Yeah, it is, but you know that's how you look at stuff, and that's also how epidemics work. You hit them early, you hit them hard, especially when they're in the exponential phase, and you and, and you do lower your peaks. And that's borne out by data from nineteen eighteen flu epidemic cities that closed early and that kept their closures for longer initially. Um, had not only far lower deaths, but also they had lower um, economic damage. They were actually able to recover quickly. There was a, a paper sort of at the end of March, April, by people who worked for like, the Federal Bank of uh, Federal Reserve in New York. These were not sort of lefty uh, economists. And they said that it was uh, pandemics that hit the economy, not, uh, not public health measures hit the economy. If you have good public health and you keep your death rate down, then potential for your economy to bounce back quicker. It's actually borne out by data from the largest pandemic, you know, a hundred years ago. Um, not a lot to really add on that, but I mean, you know, I really do appreciate where people are coming from. Obviously I disagree with, with quite a bit of it, but you know, I do think it's healthy to have these conversations. I just don't think that the argument has been won with the, with the community to make them feel reassured about uh, a wider opening. Um, and I don't think it's going to be won anytime soon. I've got to be honest. Thanks. Thank, thank you very much, very much. Uh, so just poll to give applause, everybody. Um, uh, Thanks, everyone. If you, yeah, cheers. Just a few announcements before we uh, finish up. Um, so uh, the, the oh, yeah, apologies for the tech problems at the uh, beginning. Uh, I know Kevin was gutted not to be able to contribute um, or, or think aloud with everybody. Um, but from this backup board person's um, a, a point of view, that I, I thought it was a really brilliant discussion. We didn't resolve it as ever. Uh, we didn't resolve the question, but um, hopefully everyone had lots of been gone away with lots of, to think about as the situation develops over the coming weeks and months. And this is, really isn't a discussion that's happening as, as much as it should be. I know I'm going to read through the 200 plus chat comments that have been whizzing in front of my eyes, but I haven't been able to pay enough attention to. Um, so uh, I, I forgot to mention earlier on that this session was recorded um, for to go up on the website. If anyone has any concerns about their own contributions, we are very happy to edit them out. So just please drop me a line um, and it should go up on a, a, otherwise in the next week or so. Um, at this point, uh, we usually go down the pub. Uh, we clearly can't do that. Maybe soon, Claire's suggesting our next meeting is in, or as soon as possible, we want to get back to doing public face-to-face um, -face meetings but it's not you know, for the time being um, if you'd have bought us a pint at this moment maybe you'd instead like to donate to the Academy of Ideas and you can do that by going to uh, academyofideas.academyofideas.org.uk and there's a big blue donate button up there the, um, the education forum we're all volunteers and the Academy um, is putting on events most nights of the week you might know that there's a, a, a one a parents forum uh, session to tomorrow night on coming of age in a crisis so you have a look on the site if you want to sign up for that also if you just go to the education forum uh, page there's a, a sign up for our mailing list if you want to know about those future events which you know hopefully will be face to face soon uh, so that's the announcements i'm going to unmute everybody and if you'd like to uh, show your applause uh, as best you can <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.